My cat really hates ghost peppers. The sky is falling. Oh my god, the vendors are evil. Hey, look, it's not my fault you can't use the internet. Today is Tuesday, June 10th, 2014, and this is the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as usual, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Good evening, Jerry. Good evening, fellow listeners. All, what are we up to? Seven? Eight now? Uh, well, no, I think we're, we may have turned to 14. Uh, wow. Yeah, it's crazy. One of your cousins from Iowa, I bet. Well, they all are mostly family, I think. There's uh, a few. Fair enough. Anyway. Uh, actually, you know, a couple weeks ago, a lot of them, about half of them actually checked in on Twitter. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> um, so yeah. anyway, good evening. Good evening to you. And uh, as usual, the thoughts and opinions and, and whatever other nonsense happens on this podcast uh, do not reflect the opinions or views of our employers. So Bob and I had a had a nice long talk. So apparently Bob is uh you know out of the craziness for a little bit and and actually had to work on an incident recently. And uh he wanted to basically convey some important information and I think this is something that we've talked about in the past. Uh in this particular case the 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 company he was working with had a website web server sitting out on an external DMZ or external server network or, you know, the magic zone, whatever your company calls it. Uh, and that web server, as most usually do, relies on a database server. And that database server was on a different network, which is also common. However, that database was on an intranet. So inside their their internal network and uh, of course, all of these systems were Microsoft Windows. The database server was SQL Server. And uh, while it was a good thing that the web server was not part of their Active Directory domain, the database server was. And you can imagine uh, what may have happened next. And the, the point that Bob wanted me to to raise here is that you really have to think about how things can go wrong. And so it's not it's not really enough to just say, hey, the web server is the dangerous thing, so we're going to move that out onto the external DMZ, and then we'll just have this, this uh, firewall port open to the internal network, and everything will be happy and, and good. You know, this kind of goes back to, you know, You've got to really map it out. Indeed. So, anyhow. Yeah, that's ugly. And, you know, <laughs> since we're about advice on the show occasionally, when when I remind you, you know, there are things that could be done better. Indeed. So, I would say any system that is referenced by an external system probably not being in your AD tree. Right. I would say have systems in place, assuming that that system is going to be attacked, being well monitored, being well alerted. Perhaps in this particular scenario, a database monitoring or a database sort of 
firewall in front of it, you know, a la Imperva or others, might watch for attacks coming from your website into your database. You know, maybe have that middleware layer as its own individual DMZ. Yeah, that's, I think the a really important thing is, is to actually set up a tiered type of network structure where you, where you, you may only, you may have your website on an externally accessible network and you may have your database server internally accessible, but you should probably, or, you know, internal on an internal network that's not accessible to the, to the outside world, but that shouldn't be your internal, internal network. It should maybe a, a, an intermediate network zone. And the other thing I'd say is, you know, there's, there is a, in, in this particular case, uh, this, this unfortunately happened too, there is a tendency to want to consolidate, you know, and, and sure. in IT, it's, it's becoming a lot more about cost. And so, you know, it might not be a great idea to run your HR system on your, uh, on that same database server, because now that data, that, that HR data is potentially accessible by a person hypothetically uh, who has compromised your web server, and and that could really be a, a very bad thing and and lead to all sorts of chaos. Which also leads us into what if you've got virtualization going on, and yeah. you've got multiple servers running on the same virtualization platform. Let's pick on VMware for a moment. Um, yes, by the love of the law, you've divided that stuff up, but you got to keep in mind what your attack surface looks like and your avenues of attack and you know vectors that the bad guys can take into your systems and it's not always about just what's most cost efficient that's right that's absolutely right so in this case did bob cut off any fingers i know he likes to do that not yet not yet i i i, I fear for their network architect though yeah yeah, I imagine he's going to lose a digit. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move on to uh, to happier things. The, the the next thing we have tonight comes from Reuters, and the title is "U.S. SEC Official Urges Broader Cybersecurity Attack Disclosure." So you're saying something that involves the government is a happier thing? Well, then getting your fingers cut off, I suppose. That is debatable, my friend. But let's move on. Yes. So, SEC. Yes. Broader Cyber Attack Disclosure. Right. And so for those paying attention and in the know, the SEC back, I think, in 2011 had issued an order, or I don't think it was actually an order, but basically directions saying that publicly listed companies in the U.S. had to disclose uh, security breaches that resulted in a material impact to your business. And we don't, we never really did get a good definition of what material was, but, you know, different companies have interpreted that different ways. And now we have the SEC saying, hey, there's a lot of stuff that's not material that you should probably also disclose. Now, I'll tell you, I you know, I, I'm not necessarily disagreeing with the point of disclosure, especially when people's data have been lost as a result of your, your actions or inactions, but I'm not entirely sure it makes sense in the context of an SEC disclosure 
to to mandate disclosure that in a financial report that doesn't really impact the performance of the company. I don't know. What do you think? This is that tough line, right? How do you know what is material? Yeah. Uh, you know, and what they urged as well here is is something we see over and over and over again, which is the way we're going to protect ourselves is more information sharing. Everybody needs to open the kimono more and tell us more about what happened. I have seen this attempted over and over and over and over again. I'm not saying it's not necessarily a valid commentary, but I'm saying that I haven't seen anything actually work yet. I've seen the ISACs. I've seen you know, different verticals forming committees. We saw the same thing where they started another one of these up in the retail space recently. The whole concept of threat intelligence is somewhat based on this concept. I don't know that it's going to happen. I just don't know that companies feel comfortable enough sharing more information than they have to. Well, I, I think I think it's it's plain to see that they don't. And in the context of this with, you know, disclosing this in your your 10K or your 10Q, um, it, that, that goes, takes it up a, a couple of notches. And um, I, I honestly don't think com- companies are going to go running to this with open arms, for, for sure. Yeah. I, I, I guess what I'm saying is I don't disagree that, you know, they want, you know, I don't disagree with the advice. I just don't think it's a viable plan. I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> well, you know, here's my here's my take. I suspect this is a step towards a mandate. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Which, you know, again, is never the best thing. We don't really need more government mandates. Um, it's going to be one more thing that's going to drive companies to not want to be public. Uh, you know, on top of Sarbanes-Oxley and uh, a bunch of other regulations out there that make it really a pain in the ass to go public. The one thing I will agree with is that he is urging, you know, he says he wants the boards to put more time and resources into making sure management has developed response plans. I completely agree with that. And, and I think the more we can do to sort of get this as an awareness item at the board level, the better we are. Um, but I certainly wouldn't want to do it via government mandate yeah uh, that might be that may be the stick they're trying to use to to make boards stand up and pay attention but um it'll be interesting to see where it goes from here so anyhow moving on to our next story this comes from securityledger.com the title is ipmi insecurity affects 200,000 systems this is a kind of a follow-up to a story we talked about gosh, last year, I guess, uh, where Dan Farmer had done some research and found a whole horde of vulnerabilities with the base management interfaces, the IPMI. And uh, you know, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time talking about the details here, but you know, basically he did a, a more recent scan of the internet and found 230,000 systems, uh, baseband controllers, connected directly to the internet. And, you know, you, I think we, we both have some things to say potentially about the research and, and, and whatnot. But, you know, the point is there's 230,000 systems based, you know, IPMI controllers connected to the Internet. What the heck? Those are the ones found by a basic scan. Right. Yeah. You know, the one part of here, I, I agree with his fundamental point 
Uh, but I'm going to go off on a minor rant for a moment where he, he writes, quote, for over a decade, major survey manufacturers have harmed their customers by shipping servers that are vulnerable by default with a management protocol that is insecure by design and with little no documentation about how to make things better, he wrote, quote, end quote. Where do I start with this? Where is the responsibility on the organization that is running these devices in production? Isn't there a level of responsibility where they need to know what they're running in production, what it means, what the security risks are? If we're reliant on the manufacturers to secure us, we are doomed because all that's going to do is make really expensive products and really dumb down their, their options. For instance, if I stood up a database and left the default password and somebody hacked into it, whose fault is that? And in part, that's what we have here. A lot of these uh, IPMI controls are shipped with default passwords enabled or poor security enabled, but they're not the only way they can be configured. So I don't want to take away from his main point, which is that we are ignoring these IPMI and BMCs, and we shouldn't be. There needs to be a much greater awareness over these. We need to get our arms around these. We should be identifying these. We should know that these are connected, and we should know exactly what these do, or they shouldn't be plugged into our networks. We know, should know how to secure them. But to throw the entire blame back on the manufacturers is BS. They're reacting to customer demand. And if customers aren't demanding more security around this, they don't care. They're under no obligation to secure you. You are under obligation to secure you. Yeah, I guess uh, the only thing I'd say, and uh, you know, I, I, I agree with your, uh, with your sentiment for the most part. I, I, although I will tell you, I think we have seen quite a lot of bullying of manufacturers in uh, away from the whole default password kind of thing and and uh, you know to me it seems like this is more of the same you know maybe it's a little more dramatic right but you know I, i'm not I, i'm not terribly surprised to see the the the, the naming and shaming going on here but uh, i i agree especially in this particular case there isn't there, there's just no reason for this not to be secure. This is the kind of thing that you put on a on a pretty well secured, you know, management network with very limited access. There is no reason at all this should be exposed to the internet. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, and and I don't want to let my rant about his choice of terminology to overwhelm the key point, which is that the hell are you doing plugging this into a perimeterly you know perimeter network, much less one that's open to the internet. You know, that's, that's right. bad. That's, that's right. so bad. <laughs> so I think the key here is that there needs to be more awareness around these BMCs and, uh, you know, and, and when they're plugged in and how they work. And, you know, if you want to be a smart InfoSec guy, you should be aware of this stuff. Absolutely. All right. Moving on. Our next story comes from Krebs Online. And uh, the the this is a kind of late-breaking P.F. Chang's was hacked. Well, we don't know that for sure. Well, yeah. Like we weren't sure that Sally Beauty was hacked, and we weren't sure. That- but hey, 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 we report facts. <laughs> fair, fair point. Right? And, and we're here. We try to be good about saying when, we, when we're, we're assuming something or when there's conjecture involved. So All we know for sure is that a whole bunch of credit cards that got sold or up for sale just all happen to be used at various different PF Chang's locations. Yeah, the the common point of use is becoming kind of the gold standard of of tracking down where 
where things are going. And in fact, P.F. Chang's publicly said they have been in communications with law enforcement and banks to investigate what the, the source of uh, whatever is happening. So you're right. We don't know for sure. There hasn't been a, a public admission that they were hacked, but, you know. I fully expect them to. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. I fully expect them to go and go, yep, we got pwned. Uh, sorry. But <laughs> but dang, their spicy chicken is good. It is. It really is. So, and, the, and the lettuce wraps. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. You know, if you haven't been to BF Chang's, go. Just just use cash. But you should go because it's tasty. In fact, I think I'm going tomorrow. So, Thanks for inviting me. Well, you know, that's the Fine. way it works. That's the Fine. way it works. All right, let's move on. Our next story comes from Forbes. Network security built to fail is the title. I love this story. Yes. I love this story. Sorry, Gore. No, no, it's good. The, this, I'll boil this down. And, and I first heard about Chaos Monkey quite some time ago. And I have been enamored with Chaos Monkey ever since I, I heard of it. And, <laughs> and, and, so, so many jokes. I know, I know. So many. But, uh, it, basically the, the point of the article is we need to, as, as probably even broader than just security, as IT people in general, we need to think about in today's world, given our current reliance on technology, we need to build in resilience. And so he hi- he highlights uh, what is done at Netflix. So Netflix is, uh, you know, I think we all know who Netflix is. And they have this really innovative thing. If you're not familiar with it, it's called Chaos Monkey. And Netflix is a is a very very large footprint out in the cloud. And I think that you run an Amazon web services and uh, what they have is that they obviously not only have the normal IT infrastructure, but they also have this thing called chaos monkey that runs around in their infrastructure and hoses up servers at random constantly. It will shut off instances. It will freeze them up. It will, slow them down. It will do all sorts of crazy things. And the whole point is that as a developer for this, you are developing it with the full knowledge that chaos monkey is in play. And, and you know that if you don't properly handle chaos monkey, you know, your, your butt's going to be back there uh, fixing your, your problem pretty soon. And, uh, you know, he, he points out, the, the author here works at Akamai, and he points out that at Akamai they have what they consider to be the equivalent of the cast monkey, which is the internet at large. <laughs> Did we ever give the name of the article, by the way? I know we said it was Forbes, but... Uh, yeah, the, the, the name of the article is Network Security Built Build to Fail, if I didn't read it. Yes, by Dave Lewis. Right. So... One of the other points that I got out of this is that he sort of expands on this beyond just all infrastructure to security. Right. How are you dealing with these sorts of things? You know, and I completely agree with this concept that you have to build with the failure, especially an attack born failure in mind. Right. That is part of security. If the, you go way, 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 way back, the initial definition of security um, was the CIA triad, and, and 
you know, confidentiality, integrity, and availability. We've moved beyond that as a model, but it still applies, and availability is one of those. You know, this is, you know, he mentions here, this is before DDoSs were really popular. No, yeah. So, you know, one of these things that we have to keep in mind is how do we deal with failure? And because it's going to happen. This is kind of like the same thing we talk about. Prevention is failing. We have to assume we're going to get hacked. How do we deal with that hack? Same thing here. How do we deal with an outage? And how do we deal with certain devices and certain systems going offline um, and, and having a robust enough infrastructure that can handle that? And uh, I, I think it's brilliantly uh, you know, brilliant observation. Um, he's a little clumsy in his writing at times. I, I think he could have used a, a bit of an editor on this particular story. But all that being said, uh, I couldn't agree more. Uh, it's it's difficult. It's expensive. It's not easy. It's slow to do it this way. But I think it's the right way to do it if you can. Yep, I agree. Yeah. Uh, but it is certainly not easy. A lot of applications are built for this. Not built for the concept of, you know, automatic failover DR type environments and you know that sort of thing. So uh, it's something something very much to consider. Yeah, and and not every business can can justify the cost associated with all that. It's true. So, all right, moving on. Next, we have an article from InfoWorld, and the title is Five Lessons." from companies that computer security or that get computer security right. And uh, lesson number one is these companies have little to no permanent members in, in admin groups, which I think is a, is a, is a pretty good idea. However, as with everything, it's pretty challenging to pull off. And he, they uh, recommend a couple of different options here. For instance, breaking privileges down into different groups and then doing assignments based on you know, specific needs at specific times, rather than just having domain administrator, you might uh, you, you might create different groups that have specific, very specific functionality that different people need access to. Because not everybody needs. I mean, it's pretty rare that everybody needs the entire scope of a domain admin all the time. And uh, another is is to use password vaulting software. So you do, in fact, have domain admin accounts, but they're vaulted away and you have to check out the, the ID, check it back in, and then the password gets changed. And then the third way is using some kind of privilege management software where the, uh, the, the elevation happens as the... Uh, the actions are are taking place, and those are those can get pretty complicated as well. I think all of the options are are relatively expensive. However, this is really effective, and I'll uh, I'll say particularly in the context of a Active Directory environment, which is kind of the uh, the, the you know, certainly the APT dream, but but you know even more kind of the general hacker's dream these days. I, yeah, I agree. The other thing I'll say is that um, password vaulting and you know that sort of thing can be used far beyond just Windows environments, uh, and it's something that I recommend in general if you can afford it and can deal with the infrastructure. Yep. You know, routers and other you know Unix systems and uh, all sorts of critical systems can can benefit from this sort of thing. 
That's a good point. It's, it's, it's probably one of the few solutions that would work across your environment, whether it's Windows or Unix or, or routers, as you mentioned. Uh, second option or second uh, attribute of these companies that don't get hacked or, or d that do security right are that they remove or forcibly patch Java. Yeah. And, yeah. Wow. And and uh, he he points they point out the author and here points out this is I guess Roger Grimes writing this points out that that can be difficult because sometimes companies need java and sometimes it breaks however if uh you know if you're taking this seriously your organization may just have to suck it up and live with it being broken for for some period of time and obviously that's not going to work for everybody uh, but but they point out that if you have a you know some kind of critical business need on java and it can't ever be broken look at Look at isolated network system or maybe non-network systems or, or systems on a network that has no connectivity to anything. Is an it goes back, to, goes back to our last discussion. Assume they're going to get popped. Yeah. How, well, do, you, how do you isolate them? You right? got Java. You're going to get popped. <laughs> and, you know, how do, how do you keep them se segregated enough? Yeah. Yep. Number three, admin passwords are not shared. And that is a... Uh, that's a, kind of a bad way to phrase it. What they really mean is don't use the same password on different systems. So, you know, if you have a bunch of Unix systems, don't make the root password be all the same. They should yeah. all have unique passwords because if, if for whatever reason, a person is able to obtain a password on one system and you, you've used that same password everywhere, yeah, it's really convenient, but it's also convenient for your attacker too. So, and this goes back, by the way, to the first one. A good password management tool handles this problem. Absolutely. Number four, outstanding monitoring and alerting. And we've talked about this one quite a lot too. Uh, one of the points they bring up is, is that these companies investigate all of their alerts. And, and kind of implicit in there is that you have a level of alerting that is manageable. Yeah, I, I think you missed a big key point here, which is that a properly tuned alerting system. Well, he does go on to say that event monitoring is an art and that uh, you really have to spend some effort in finding someone who can, can help you sort through that and, and get things tuned properly. And I think he actually says that the people that can do that are worth their weight in gold. Yeah, it's it's a valid point. It's a little clumsy in the execution. Um, you really need to know what to monitor, how to monitor, how to tune, um, how to correlate, and you know where and how. I, I strongly agree with this, right? Um, but it's not just about alerting. This is one thing where I think it falls down a little bit. It's not just about alerting. It's about having the rest of the infrastructure in place that once an alert comes in, you can go investigate it appropriately. Like you've got the forensics out there already that you can go to a system that did something weird and take a look at all of the execution logs on it. Do you have some sort of gear out there that is monitoring all of the stuff going on in that box? And you can start to see, oh, wow, this is weird. Look how this, you know a la Carbon Black or Mandiant or Bit9 or dozens of other tools that are built specifically 
to watch every execution, every every piece of code running on a box, and allow you post breach or post uh, you know weirdness to go back and really dig into what happened on a computer, assuming it wasn't wiped. Um, and all that really needs to be set up properly ahead of time. Yep, <clears throat> absolutely. So it's more than just having alerts. It's also having the rest of the infrastructure. You've got a clueful, proper incident response team that can actually dig into it and see what happens. Same with the network network layer, right? Do you have good network recording or network anomaly investigative techniques? And probably even more fundamental than that, do you have network maps? Do you do you have a do you have an easily accessible inventory system and you know, because every every step of the way that you have to spend effort in finding out, well, what is that system? Where is it at? What does it do? You know, that's that just detracts from from the 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 capacity to handle incidents. So, um, number five is segmentation of weaknesses. So the idea here is to prevent, as, as he puts it, to prevent the easy movement between your weakest and strongest systems or environments. And, you know, I think this kind of is, it's one of those fractal type of, uh, of things, right? It's, it's true at the very high level and it's also true kind of at the lower level too. And, you know, he, he points out that almost every company and IT department, security departments charged with managing some kind of legacy system that can't be upgraded, doesn't have great security and whatnot. And, and we need to wrap around those kinds of environments to the extent we can, uh, some kind of protection to keep those things not only safe, but also from being leveraged as a, as a way into your other stuff that, that is potentially more secure. So, those are the five lessons that, that uh, Roger Grimes believes we can learn from companies that get InfoSec right. So moving on to our next... Oh, you got something else? I was just going to say, you know, clearly there weren't six lessons or four. There had to be five. Well, it's a nice round number, you know. <laughs> not seven, not eight, five. All right, our next story comes from Cyber War Zone and I apologize, it's a Cyber War Zone article, but here it is. The title is Hackers Behind Op Petrol Will Attack on June 20th, 2014. And by the way, I think that Op Petrol may be my first use of the fuck year. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, anyway. And if you don't know what that means... I'll 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 drop it into the uh, I'll drop the yeah, YouTube video and it's I wish we could claim credit for it. It's epic. It's not safe for work, but it's epic. Nope, not safe for work. However, once you once you get it, you can use it at work and 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 feel good about yourself. It's true. So anyhow, uh, you know we all remember and love anonymous and and their attacks. Well, a non ghost has reared its head again and they are threatening the the Kuwait and Saudi Arabia petroleum industry because apparently they still trade in dollars which I'm not sure they really have a choice uh, but you know hey we they need to to do something right so on June 20th they are apparently going to unleash the the dogs of DDoS hell 
I guess, on on uh, some number of companies. And there's a normally I wouldn't talk about this because you know this is June 20th is going to come and go probably, and we we won't think much about it. But there's some pretty good suggestions if you ever if you are ever in the position of being named as a as a potential target to one of these hacktivist groups i think the 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 list of activities they or preparations they have in this article are pretty good and in probably worth ha- having around for reference um, just in case you ever need them and you know there're things like obvious stuff like ensure your your all of your IT systems are updated well you know hopefully it doesn't take this kind of thing to make sure that happens but also things like having your IT security attorneys external communications department prepare or review public statements you know that's a that's a really good idea because and and maybe it's not necessarily specific to this kind of an event or threat you know, maybe it makes sense for you, depending on your organization, to have something kind of canned uh, in, in case this happens as maybe a, a, a broader incident management or incident response program. But, you know, again, there's some good good ideas here. They have a couple of ideas to to uh, of what to do on June 20th. And then, uh, then at, you know, assuming nothing happens on June 20th, what do you do after June 20th? Um, you know, I, to me, the story isn't about the the threat. The story here was about the uh, the, the list of preparation activities because you know I, I've seen it quite a lot, although probably a lot less over the past year. When uh, when these hacktivist threats come in, everybody kind of goes a little bit nuts. And says, "What do we do?" And well, here's a great here's a great list. So there you go. All right, our next story comes from, I don't even know how to pronounce this website, Mondo Vision, I guess. The title is Bank of England Launches New Framework to Test for Cyber Vulnerabilities. Now, again, this is probably not normally something that I would cover, but I thought this was really cool. The, uh, the, The Bank of England here has established this new testing framework that they call CBEST, C-B-E-S-T. And the idea is they're going to use you know, threat intelligence, and I assume they're not up to the level of our threat intelligence NG in the cloud yet. Big data 2.0. Big data 2.0, but you know, sooner or later they'll get there. However, they're going to use threat intelligence to, number one, identify or profile who the attackers are for a given financial institution and what the, the attack characteristics of those, those uh, actors are. And they're going to run a test of that institution using those, you know, those tactics and see how they, how that financial institution can weather the storm. And, and to be honest, it's, it's one of the more sensible things I've seen come out of, uh, um, you know, a central bank like this. So, you know, kudos to the Bank of England on a on what seems like a good idea. Anyhow, moving on to our next story. This one comes from 
uh, dailyfinance.com. The title is Data Breach. Who cares? Shoppers still flock to Target. And, you know, I think we've talked about this in the past, and I've certainly gotten to my fair share of arguments on a couple of mailing lists with people about this. But as IT security people, kind of like, uh, you know, the, the prepper movement hopes for, you know, Armageddon or, or an EMP or, you know, some reason for them to use their bunker and, or, or, or whatever. Uh, IT people, I think, really hope for, or I should say security people, really hope for some kind of demonstrable damage happening from a, from a breach, you know, to be able to say, look, target, you know, Target lost half of its shoppers as a result of the data breach. Well, the problem is it doesn't seem to be coming to fruition here. However, you know, there are some other things that we're going to talk about in a minute. Um, but this uh, this article references a s- survey done by Bloomberg. They pulled a bunch of people back in May and they found that 85% said that they will shop at least as much as they did last year. Eight, uh, sorry, seven percent said they shop even more. Eight percent said they shop less. So you know, assuming you can trust those numbers, eh, the breach really didn't have a whole lot of impact on on their uh, their customer base. So uh, there was an interesting point that they they uh, they noted in the survey. Apparently, they asked the question: Do you believe that Target will be able to keep your data safe? And, and is that the question or is the question do you care? Well, I don't think that was the I don't think that was the or, question. I know that's not the question they asked, but is that really the question well, that should be asked? Well, obviously it is because half of the half of the respondents said they don't believe Target will do a good job of keeping their data safe. And and, and yet they're going to still shop there. So obviously and and here's my theory on that. At least in the U.S., and I know this isn't the same in 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 other countries, and I know we have lots of, well, I won't say lots, right? There's probably maybe two or three people in other countries listening to the podcast, so I don't want to leave you. Well, when you're stuck in a Guatemalan prison, what else are you going to do? Fair, fair point, fair point. Um, but here in the U.S., if your credit card gets compromised and, and used for fraudulent charges, like happened to a whole bunch of people in this target event, it's a, it's an inconvenience to you. You know, you see the, tar- you see the charges, you call up your credit card, they, uh, they email you a thing that you have to print out and sign. It's basically an affidavit that says, I didn't make these charges. And then two, two or three days later, the charges are gone and you go on your way. Uh, you know, not obviously if you have your identity stolen, that's a different, it's a whole a lot more hassle, but you know, I, I think that in, in general, it's just not all that, you know, it's just not all that damaging to people to have their credit card stolen. It's not that inconvenient, you know. I think you have a lot of outrage after the Target breach. Lots of people got on, you know, got on the internet and got on 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 you know news TV news interviews and shook their fist at the sky about this. But in, at the end of the day. I don't think people really care. 
Yeah, I would agree. Uh, you know, it's end of the day, it's it's not their liability. It's not their pain. I, I really do think that the ones that are going to affect change are going to be the, the businesses and the banks that are really suffering the losses. That's that's going to be the case. And, and so that kind of dovetails into the next story. So we have in the past talked about how the CIO of Target was essentially asked to leave. And then not long after... The CEO left, and obviously it's not entirely clear that the CEO left as a direct result of the breach. But now we have a story coming from StarTribune.com. The title is Target Board Defends Its Role Before and After the Breach. And now it's the board of directors' turn in the hot seat. Now, for those who don't know, the reason why Star Tribune matters here is that they are local to Target's headquarters. Correct. It's a uh, it's a Minneapolis-St. Paul uh, news outlet. So there's a in the U.S. here there is a a group called ISS Institutional Shareholder Services. And when I used to work at ISS, I would hear about ISS that ISS and often get confused. And well, anyway, um, they issued a uh, they issued a statement to a lot of their customers saying uh, that or, or urging that seven of the ten current board members be replaced as a result of the this breach that they, in fact they say that the board failed to protect the company against last year's data breach you know they they are making a pretty strong claim and the uh, the interim chairman of the board, Roxanne Austin, uh, most of this article is actually dedicated to her rebuttal to the uh, to the allegations. But um, you know, this is maybe the other side. You know, where, where while the company itself may not have suffered in terms of sales, you know, certainly the executive team is feeling a ton of heat. And uh, and, and by the way. I'll tell you just personally, I've, I see some, uh, you know, some evidence of this taking root in some of the, some larger company boards. And certainly Bob has told me that, you know, the board of directors at, at his company is very interested in, uh, getting more, getting more understanding or getting a better understanding of the, uh, the response capabilities and, uh, making sure they're securing their data and all that stuff. So interesting, interesting times. Yeah. And you know, at the end of the day, this is how it's supposed to work with a public company, right? The shareholders decide who's on the board. The board executes their vision and the shareholders should, in theory, if they are active, change the board if they don't like the leadership. So that's right. That's how it's supposed to work. That's right. Does it often? No, but well, you know, and and by the way, I had a I had a I had a pretty interesting de- debate about this because I, for right or f- for good or ill, I don't believe that data breaches have a material impact on stock, and I think there's a couple of structural reasons for that. You know, f- mostly has to do with institutional investors not really having a good way to model how these kinds of things will actually impact the long-term performance of a company. And therefore, you know, they don't really want to jump on, uh, uh, jump, jump out and start trading and potentially lose a bunch of money because of, uh, you know, something that historically 
they don't have much much data uh, to back. So I think that's uh, that's that's probably why potentially that we see some of these uh, these companies post breach not really suffering that much in the stock market. But that's just uh, that's just my crazy hypothesis. So. Uh, next story we have comes from Forbes. Also, the title is True Crypt is Back, but should it be? It's a it's a pretty long article, and he interviews someone. Um, y- you can read it. Uh, here's the here's the the net of the story. True Crypt, you know, it turned out not to be a joke, right? We didn't, you know, we when we first talked about it, we didn't know what the heck was going on. It's not a joke. True Crypt. The, the official development is gone. And in the wake of that, this this new group in Sweden set up a, a new website, truecrypt.ch, I believe. And they have made some comments that they're intending to relicense the software. And the, the people who are doing the code audits are going to continue doing their code audits and whatever comes out of that will will uh will happen the article itself doesn't really lend a whole lot of of actual new information there's a lot more speculation about you know well why why did they do this uh you know what what could they potentially be talking about is uh is vulnerable and and that sort of thing you know i i don't know that we'll we'll ever know if if there in fact is anything, unless the, uh, the 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 code audits underway actually find something, but you know, given given the complexity of that, and that's actually something they talk about in here, it's probably pretty unlikely that they'll find that. But you know, we'll see. I'm personally kind of interested to see how they license, how they relicense someone else's code. With a different license, I don't know how that's going to work, and I'm, you know, I, I don't know how, particularly any any company that does any kind of, you know, do care is going to accept this license, knowing that it was, you know, essentially uh, hijacked, um, you know, and now the the original authors of the or owners of the code may never surface, and you know, obviously they would have to surface if they wanted to to. Uh, you know, to come after people for uh, for license infringement, and that may not happen. But you know, still, I think there's going to be enough fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I'm sure you know, Symantec and others will be very happy to feed that that beast. Um, you know, I, I just don't see how this is going to work out real real well in the long term for for TrueCrypt, though. I kind of wish it would. So, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I think. You know, we'll try to get Richard Stallman on the show and see what he thinks with the licensing issue. <laughs> Fair point. It's, uh, um, yeah, it's it's a weird, weird story. Weird story. Yes, and uh, you know, speaking of another weird story, our, our last story for the night comes from Wired, and the title is "After Heartbleed, We're Overreacting to Bugs That Aren't a Big Deal." And I can personally relate to this story. Um, pretty significantly. You know, and the, the, the article is a little long, uh, but it, it, basically the point is Heartbleed was very unique for 
quite a number of ways that everybody's probably very familiar with. You know, it was very broad in what it impacted. It was trivial to exploit. Um, people right out of the gate were able to demonstrate what could be done with it. I mean, within minutes of it being public, people were showing that they had retrieved passwords from Yahoo. I mean, it was there was no denying it. There was a logo for it. It was, you know, from a from a, a news perspective, it was as good as it gets. And uh, you know, and it was you know it was a serious thing. Not as as they point out in this article, not nearly as serious as we have seen in the past. You know, when you think about Heartbleed, it's orders of magnitude less severe than things we've dealt with in the past. You know, with Slammer and you know, other things that you know, were, were, were just way worse. They, they, they ended up not with, you know, getting some random chunk of memory, but with your system being compromised and, you know, basically large parts of the internet being compromised, in fact. So the issue is we had a, we had another spate of open SSL vulnerabilities. And by the way, I anticipate we're going to have this happen for a while. Right, because now everybody's looking at it. You know, you got everybody and their dog is picking through OpenSSL. You know, there were uh, I think a couple of weeks back there was some vulnerabilities in GNU TLS, which is very commonly used on client side applications. And you know, we're we're gonna we're gonna keep seeing these kinds of things for a while. But you know, whether or not we see something that is is quote serious as what Heartbleed was is is probably you know, we hopefully we won't, but the point of the article is we the 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 propensity of people is to act like they are. You know, oh my gosh, there's more open SSL vulnerabilities. Well, okay, to play devil's advocate though, I'd rather have people care and be concerned and have a sense of urgency than go back to la di da di da di da. Everything's fine. No need to patch. I mean, I get what you're saying. I agree that we can overreact, and that can be just as bad. In fact, some of the knee-jerking and heartbleed actually led to other issues. So we need to be balanced and mindful and thinking through the risks of patching and not patching and Mm -hmm. weighing that for the various things. But at the same time, I don't want to put my stamp on the comment of, you know, vulnerabilities are not a concern in certain circumstances. Uh, you know, we need to care about this stuff, especially when it's as public as this. Yeah, yeah. I, and I'm not, I'm not disputing that. I guess my concern is, is the whole vulnerability fatigue kind of of thing. You know, and was, we Agreed. we we need to treat them. I mean, they need to be, they need to be dispensed with in the priority with which they well, deserve, I, right? I, I hate to, you know, kind of go to, well, uh, all right, strike all that. I, <laughs> I think Microsoft was on the right path when they went to Patch Tuesday. It became a regular part of a cadence yeah. for IT, yep. and it became normal business to yep. deal with patches. And you knew what was going to happen. And I think everybody sort of their mindset shifted to every second Tuesday, I'm going to have to worry about patches for Microsoft, right? And how am I going to deal with that? I think that makes sense. You build this patching mindset into your IT infrastructure, into your vernacular, into your way you do business. 
and it's not then a crisis and it's not a hassle. Now, there's always going to be out-of-cycle patches. I get that. But I'm not saying everybody should you know, go to Patch Tuesday, but that sort of mindset, I think, helps IT organizations. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely agree. And, and now, having having kind of downplayed the you know the the importance of those recent open SSL patches, I'll tell you where I am concerned is that I think, and and by the way, again, none of those recent vulnerabilities were like Heartbleed. You know, they're they're they are they are pretty narrowly exploitable. You know, they're they're for the specific cases where you can you can set up a man in the middle type of attack right they're 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 just not fundamentally like what we saw before they're bad right you know obviously you use open SSL for a particular purpose but it it just wasn't it just doesn't look and smell like what we had before however having said that the thing we saw with with heartbleed is that you know open SSL is used in everything from telephones to you know, cell phones, to uh, embedded devices, you know, thermostats, everything right. has it. And because it got so much press, I think we saw a lot of uh, you know, we saw a lot of those embedded devices actually releasing updates where, and you know, subsequently people applying those updates where we wouldn't normally have seen that. And so I think where where this starts to break down and become a problem is that without all that publicity, you're you know you're only a t- you're only tending to address those things that are kind of top of mind, and and you know both the consumers and the manufacturers, I think, tend to ignore everything else. So that that's that's my concern. Yeah, I hear you, and you know the the only thing I would say is that if you're patching, you know if you're System infrastructure maintenance is relying upon, you know, publicity of patches. You're probably not set up properly. Well, I, so I guess I'm I'm thinking about let's say your embedded uh, your well, embedded badge system, your, uh, agreed your access and, and, card system. And you know, this is actually going to be a bigger problem going forward. I think we're going to have more and more of these systems that aren't even patchable. And it's, how are you going to deal with that? Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, and back in the 90s, we started toying around with this concept of virtual patching, where an IPS would watch for a specific exploit against a known, vulnerable, unpatched problem, especially when you start tying it to vulnerability scanners. And by the way, this, this concept has resurfaced recently. I don't know that I trust that, uh, but I think it's going to get a lot of marketing traction. Well, especially because of those unpatchable yeah. systems. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the the only other thing I'd say is that I'm hoping, I doubt it, but I'm hoping the industry would be a little less naive after the whole Harbleed incident, the open SSL incident, to not be so reliant without auditing something so critical. But, again, that's a lot to ask. Uh, you know, I, I certainly I think the pen, you know, it's a swinging pendulum, right? And I, and I, and I you know, we, we saw the Linux Foundation initiative where, there were several million dollars thrown into doing a whole bunch of code auditing, and you know they'll they'll audit the common things, you know Linux and and the big the big players. But I would anticipate it over time that pendulum's going to swing back the other way. You know it's going to be 
other pieces of technology that's, that, that pop up. You know, it's something that might not even exist today that in, in five or 10 years, we're going to become as reliant on as we are on OpenSSL today. And it's just going to, it's just going to emerge out of nowhere and we're not going to pay attention to it. I think the, the big challenge is how do we, how do we keep our eyes out for those kinds of things? Because it's really easy to go back and say after after Heartbleed, oh, we should be, we should be, uh, we, you know, we should be code auditing this kind of stuff, yeah. you know. But but I don't feel like we have a great as an industry. We've got a great uh, you know, view of the of the landscape, looking for for new things like this as they're emerging. Saying, hey, you know, that thing is going to become really important someday. Let's keep an eye on it. And I, you know. Maybe I'm wrong. We'll we'll see. I guess we shall see. Anyhow, that is the uh, the show for the evening. And uh, as always, thank you very much for your time. And I hope hope this was useful to you. If you have any feedback, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. You can follow us on Twitter or or send us uh, send us some tweets. At DefensiveSec, you can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And with that, we will talk again next week. Take care. Good night. See you guys. Bye.